Chapter Twenty of the Golden Bowl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Golden Bowl by Henry James. Book Three, Chapter Twenty. The main interest of these hours for us, however, will have been in the way the Prince continued to know, during a particular succession of others, separated from the evening in Eaton Square by a short interval, a certain persistent aftertaste. This was the lingering savour of a cup presented to him by Fanny Assingham's hand after dinner, while the clustered quartet kept their ranged companions in the music-room, moved if one would, but conveniently motionless. Mrs. Assingham contrived, after a couple of pieces, to convey to her friend that, for her part, she was moved, by the genius of Brahms, beyond what she could bear, so that, without apparent deliberation, she had presently floated away, at the young man's side, to such a distance as permitted them to converse without the effect of disdain. It was the twenty minutes enjoyed with her, during the rest of the concert, in the less associated electric glare of one of the empty rooms, it was there achieved and, as he would have said, successful, most pleasantly successful, talk on one of the sequestered sofas, it was this that was substantially to underlie his consciousness of the later occasion. The later occasion, then mere matter of discussion, had formed her ground for desiring, in a light undertone into which his quick ear read indeed some nervousness, these independent words with him. She had sounded, covertly but distinctly, by the time they were seated together, the great question of what it might involve. It had come out for him before anything else, and so abruptly that this almost needed an explanation. Then the abruptness itself had appeared to explain, which had introduced in turn a slight awkwardness. Do you know that they're not, after all, going to match em, so that, if they don't, if at least Maggie doesn't, you won't, I suppose, go by yourself? It was, as I say, at Matcham, where the event had placed him. It was at Matcham during the Easter days that it most befell him, oddly enough, to live over, inwardly, for its wealth of special significance, this passage by which the event had been really a good deal determined. He had paid, first and last, many an English country visit, he had learned, even from of old, to do the English things, and to do them all sufficiently in the English way. If he didn't always enjoy them madly, he enjoyed them at any rate as much, to an appearance, as the good people who had, in the night of time, unanimously invented them, and who still, in the prolonged afternoon of their good faith, unanimously, even if a trifle automatically, practiced them. Yet with it all, he had never so much as during such sojourns the trick of a certain detached, the amusement of a certain inward critical life. The determined need which apparently all participant of returning upon itself, of backing noiselessly in, far in again, and rejoining there, as it were, that part of his mind that was not engaged at the front. His body, very constantly, was engaged at the front, in shooting, in riding, in golfing, in walking, over the fine diagonals of meadow paths around the pocketed corners of billiard-tables. It sufficiently, on the whole, in fact, bore the brunt of bridge-playing, 
of breakfasting, lunching, tea-drinking, dining, and of the nightly climax over the Bottiliera, as he called it, of the bristling tray. It met finally to the extent of the limited tax on lip, on gesture, on wit, most of the current demands of conversation and expression. Therefore something of him, he often felt at these times, was left out. It was much more when he was alone, or when he was with his own people, or when he was, say, with Mrs. Verver and nobody else, that he moved, that he talked, that he listened, that he felt, as a congruous whole. English society, as he would have said, cut him accordingly in two, and he reminded himself often, in his relations with it, of a man possessed of a shining star, a decoration, an order of some sort, something so ornamental as to make his identity not complete, ideally, without it, yet who, finding no other such object generally worn, should be perpetually, and the least bit ruefully, unpinning it from his breast to transfer it to his pocket. The prince's shining star may, no doubt, having been nothing more precious than his private subtlety, but whatever the object was he just now fingered it a good deal out of sight, amounting as it mainly did for him to a restless play of memory and a fine embroidery of thought. Something had rather momentously occurred in Eaton Square during his enjoyed minutes with his old friend. His present perspective made definitely clear to him that she had plumped out for him her first little lie. That took on, and he could scarce have said why, a sharpness of importance. She had never lied to him before, if only because it had never come up for her, properly, intelligibly, morally, that she must. As soon as she had put to him the question of what he would do, by which she meant of what Charlotte would also do, in that event of Maggie's and Mr. Verver's not embracing the proposal they had appeared for a day or two resignedly to entertain, as soon as she had betrayed her curiosity as to the line the other pair, so left to themselves, might take, a desire to avoid the appearance of at all too directly prying had become marked in her. Betrayed by the solicitude of which she had already, three weeks before, given him a view, she had been obliged, on a second thought, to name, intelligibly, a reason for her appeal, while the prince on his side had had, not without mercy, his glimpse of her momentarily groping for one, and yet remaining unprovided. Not without mercy, because, absolutely, he had on the spot, in his friendliness, invented one for her use, presenting it to her with a look no more significant than if he had picked up, to hand back to her, a dropped flower. You ask if I'm likely also to back out, then, because it may make a difference in what you and the Colonel decide? He had gone as far as that for her, fairly inviting her to assent, though not having had his impression from any indication offered him by Charlotte, that the Assinghams were really in question for the large Matcham party. The wonderful thing after this was that the active couple had, in the interval, managed to inscribe themselves on the golden roll, an exertion of a sort that, to do her justice, he had never before observed Fanny to make. This last passage of the chapter but proved, after all, with what success she could work when she would. Once launched himself, at any rate, as he had been directed by all the terms of the intercourse between Portland Place and Eaton Square, once steeped at Matcham in the enjoyment of a splendid hospitality, he found everything for his interpretation, for his convenience, fall easily enough into place, 
and all the more that Mrs. Verver was at hand to exchange ideas and impressions with. The great house was full of people, of possible new combinations, of the quickened play of possible propinquity, and no appearance, of course, was less to be cultivated than that of his having sought an opportunity to foregather with his friend at a safe distance from their respective sposi. There was a happy boldness at the best in their mingling thus, each unaccompanied, and the same sustained sociability, just exactly a touch of that eccentricity of associated freedom which sat so lightly on the imagination of the relatives left behind. They were exposed as much as one would to its being pronounced funny that they should, at such a rate, go about together, though on the other hand this consideration drew relief from the fact that, in their high conditions and with the easy tradition, the almost inspiring allowances of the house in question, no individual line, however freely marked, was pronounced anything more than funny. Both our friends felt afresh, as they had felt before, the convenience of a society so placed that it had only its own sensibility to consider, looking as it did well over the heads of all lower growths, and that moreover treated its own sensibility quite as the easiest, friendliest, most informal and domesticated party to the general alliance. What any one thought of any one else, above all of any one else with any one else, was a matter incurring in these lulls so little awkward formulation that hovering judgment, the spirit with the scales, might perfectly have been imaged there as some rather snubbed and subdued, but quite trained and tactful poor relation, of equal, of the properest lineage, only of aspect a little dingy, doubtless from too limited a change of dress, for whose tacit and abstemious presence, never betrayed by a rattle of her rusty machine, a room in the attic and a plate at the side-table were decently usual. It was amusing in such lightness of air that the prince should again present himself only to speak for the princess, so unfortunately unable again to leave home, and that Mrs. Verver should as regularly figure as it embodied, a beautifully deprecating apology for her husband, who was all geniality and humility among his own treasures, but as to whom the legend had grown up that he couldn't bear, with the height of his standards and the tone of the company, in the way of sofas and cabinets, habitually kept by him, the irritation and depression to which promiscuous visiting, even at pompous houses, had been found to expose him. That was all right, the noted working harmony of the clever son-in-law and the charming stepmother, so long as the relation was, for the effect in question, maintained at the proper point between sufficiency and excess. What would the noble fairness of the place, meanwhile, the generous mood of the sunny, gusty, lusty English April, all panting and heaving with impatience, or kicking and crying even at moments, like some infant Hercules who wouldn't be dressed, what would these things and the bravery of youth and beauty, the insolence of fortune and appetite so diffused among his fellow guests that the poor Assinghams, and their comparatively marked maturity and their comparatively small splendor, were the only approach to a false note in the concert, the stir of the air was such for going in a degree to one's head, that as a mere matter of exposure, almost grotesque in its flagrancy, his situation resembled some elaborate practical joke carried out at his expense. Every voice in the great bright house was a call to the ingenuities and impunities of pleasure. Every echo was a defiance of difficulty, doubt, or danger. 
every aspect of the picture, a glowing plea for the immediate, and as with plenty more to come, was another phase of the spell. For a world so constituted was governed by a spell, that of the smile of the gods and the favor of the powers. The only handsome, the only gallant, in fact the only intelligent acceptance of which was a faith in its guarantees, and a high spirit for its chances. Its demand, to that the thing came back, was above all for courage and good humor, and the value of this as a general assurance, that is for seeing one through at the worst, had not even in the easiest hours of his old Roman life struck the prince so convincingly. His old Roman life had had more poetry, no doubt, but as he looked back upon it now it seemed to hang in the air of mere iridescent horizons, to have been loose and vague and thin, with large, languorous, unaccountable blanks. The present order, as it spread about him, had somehow the ground under its feet, and a trumpet in its ears, and a bottomless bag of solid shining British sovereigns, which was, much to the point, in its hand. Courage and good humor, therefore, with the breath of the day, though for ourselves at least it would have been also much to the point that, with Amerigo, really, the innermost effect of all this perceptive ease was perhaps a strange final irritation. He compared the lucid result with the extraordinary substitute for perception that presided, in the bosom of his wife, at so contented a view of his conduct and course, a state of mind that was positively like a vicarious good conscience, cultivated ingeniously on his behalf, a perversity of pressure innocently persisted in, and this wonder of irony became on occasion too intense to be kept wholly to himself. It wasn't that at Matcham anything particular, anything monstrous, anything that had to be noticed permitted itself, as they said, to happen. There were only odd moments when the breath of the day, as it had been called, struck him so full in the face that he broke out with all the hilarity of, "'What indeed would they have made of it?' They were, of course, Maggie and her father, moping, so far as they ever consented to mope in monotonous Eaton Square, but placid, too, in the belief that they knew beautifully what their expert companions were in for. They knew it might have appeared in these lights absolutely nothing on earth worth speaking of, whether beautifully or cynically, and they would perhaps sometimes be a little less trying if they would only once for all peacefully admit that knowledge wasn't one of their needs, and that they were in fact constitutionally inaccessible to it. They were good children, bless their hearts, and the children of good children, so that verily the Principino himself, as less consistently of that descent, might figure to the fancy as the ripest genius of the trio. The difficulty was, for the nerves of daily intercourse with Maggie in particular, that her imagination was clearly never ruffled by the sense of any anomaly. The great anomaly would have been that her husband, or even that her father's wife, should prove to have been made, for the long run, after the pattern set from so far back to the Ververs. If one was so made, one had certainly no business on any terms at Matcham whereas if one wasn't one had no business there on the particular terms, terms of conformity with the principles of Eaton Square, under which one had been so absurdly dedicated. Deep at the heart of that resurgent unrest in our young man, which we have had to content ourselves with calling his irritation, deep in the bosom of this falsity of position glowed the red spark of his inextinguishable sense of a higher and braver propriety. 
There were situations that were ridiculous, but that one couldn't yet help, as for instance when one's wife chose, in the most usual way, to make one so. Precisely here, however, was the difference. It had taken poor Maggie to invent a way so extremely unusual, yet to which, none the less, it would be too absurd that he should merely lend himself. Being thrust systematically with another woman, and a woman one happened by the same token, exceedingly to like, and being so thrust that the theory of it seemed to publish one as idiotic or incapable, this was a predicament of which the dignity depended all on one's own handling. What was supremely grotesque, in fact, was the essential opposition of theories, as if a galantuomo, as he at least constitutionally conceived, galantuomini, could do anything but blush, to go about at such a rate with such a person as Mrs. Verver, in a state of childlike innocence, the state of our primitive parents before the fall. The grotesque theory, as he would have called it, was perhaps an odd one to resent with violence, and he did it, also as a man of the world, all merciful justice. But assuredly, none the less, there was but one way really to mark, and for his companion as much as for himself, the commiseration in which they held it. Adequate comment on it could only be private, but it could also at least be active, and of rich and effectual comment Charlotte and he were fortunately alike capable. Wasn't this consensus literally their only way not to be ungracious? It was positively as if the measure of their escape from that danger were given by the growth between them, during their auspicious visit, of an exquisite sense of complicity. End of chapter 20